Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of the Logicast AWS News Podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined today, as always, by my colleague, lead cloud engineer, John Goodall. How are you doing today, John? I'm very sore. I'm very stiff. It's it's not fun. I think you better explain. <laughs> Went to the gym for the first time in like two and a half, three months because Christmas and ill and all the rest yeah. of it. Um, and decided it, against my better judgment to change my training style so that it's not just, you know, fixed sets. I've, I've started training to failure. So everything hurts. But I was grinning like an idiot because I put up some really big numbers for a change. So, you know, that's a thing. No pain, no gain. Uh, I bet it's busy in the gym being January as well. A little bit. It was seven o'clock in the morning when I went on a Sunday. So that was pretty quiet. By about 8.30, though, it was, yes, the New Year's resolutions are in and it's it's time to go again. Yeah. The John, I've been gym. putting up some big, bigger numbers myself, but <laughs> just in the <laughs> waste department. <laughs> well, that, that, I'm trying to solve that problem. <laughs> so uh, we're also joined today by uh, special guest Matt Martz, who is, uh, I believe, a fellow AWS community builder. Is that right, Matt? Yep. In uh, yeah, so tell us a bit about yourself, Matt. Yeah, so uh, I'm Matt Martz. I go by at Martz Codes on most socials. Um, I don't really post on Twitter anymore, but on LinkedIn, I'm LinkedIn.com/slash/MartzCodes. I'm a principal software architect at Definitive, or a, a small US-based startup. Um, we make an iOS app that helps people save money. Um, it's a US US regional focused app at the moment. Uh, and like you said, also an AWS community builder like the both of you. Uh, and Which category? I'm a, I'm a dev tools builder, although I, mm -hmm. I do a lot of serverless stuff, but technically I'm dev tools. Yeah. Is that we're we're definitely biased. Yeah, we're definitely biased towards things like dev tools and serverless. That's most of the people we've had on are dev tools and serverless. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Is it uh, Johannes that's into DevTools? Johannes is DevTools, but he's a hero now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. And uh, where are you joining us from today, Matt? Uh, I live around the Washington, D.C. area in the United States. Nice. Very nice. Okay. So uh, we're not here to talk about uh, the AWS Community Builder Program. As you know, if you listen to the podcast uh, every week, I collate a list of AWS news, which I share via my weekly AWS News Roundup newsletter. And then John and I select a subset of articles from the newsletter that we'd like to talk about uh, with our guests on the podcast. So we've got such a subset of articles for this week. And the first one, uh, wouldn't you know, uh, is about AI. <laughs> uh, we can't avoid it. We do try and avoid it at times, but uh, it's almost impossible to avoid talking about AI in a news-based podcast uh, right now. Uh, this one's slightly different um, to some of the AI topics that we've discussed before. Uh, it's an article on InfoWorld, and the title is AWS is readying LLM-based debugger for databases to take on open AI. Um, so this is all about using AI to debug your databases. So what can you tell us about this, John? Something you're going to be using, do you think? I don't do enough with databases anymore, to be honest. Um, that's an incredibly complicated diagram at the start, and it, it, it makes me scared, if I'm really honest. <laughs> yeah, no, LLMs and AI is not massively my area i tend to zone out a little bit um but 
as it says in like the second article, one of the first jobs I ever did was working on an ETL system for a bank, which was very SQL Server heavy. So I do have some experience with kind of performance troubleshooting and things with databases, and it's phenomenally difficult. You, you end up with performance people sort of going, and I've managed to take one iteration out of that loop by slightly fettling with your predicates, and it saved us X amount of time. It's like, what? Okay, fine. Uh, so anything in the space that's going to help debug these enormous systems is probably a good thing um i'm not entirely sure how i feel about it being closed source you're not sure how i feel about that but i you know it Isn't seems like it was it? a pretty like i don't know narrow study also i things mm -hmm. i learned from the article i didn't know amazon.science was a, a site because that's where the actual paper was published. So things I learned there. I didn't know dot .science was a domain. That's cool. I think yeah. you can have dot .anything now, can't you? Uh, there's a lot of them. Yeah. Within reason. There's a few, you probably can't have anything offensive. Hmm. I feel like, uh, I, yeah, you guys tried real hard not to have any AI articles this week, and I, I, I pulled, pulled this one in. But uh, <laughs> this, this article feels like, to me, it was written by an LLM. <laughs> <laughs> it was very repetitive there wasn't a lot in the info world piece I, I like i read the paper like that was attached to it um and yeah i don't know the info world part wasn't great it seems like the so like in the info world article didn't really mention anything about um the feedback portion of the the four-step cycle that they have um and like if the client like what I was wondering about is, let's say you use this this uh, this LLM to do some database performance updates, and it ends up removing a column. Um, is it going to be smart enough to identify that, like, some client is expecting a response from that column? Like, it, can it prevent breaking changes, or is that like fully on the the laurels of like the person reviewing the code and the feedback portion of it? I think we're still at that sort of phase with LLMs generally. This not specific to this. It's they're only as smart as the context that they've got, and the context that they've got is very limited, generally speaking. I mean, stepping outside the bounds a little bit, Code Whisperer is okay in that regard because it runs in your IDE and it has context from all the things you have open. So if you were a bit mad and you had the RAM, you could open everything and it's got the context of the whole project. But that, of course, doesn't solve the pubs up and the upstream and downstream subscribers and kind of all the rest of it and yeah you're not wrong um in terms of the you know bending off a column because it improves the performance but then something's expecting that data i don't have direct experience of that but as i said at the at the start one of the first things they did was an etl system and we were just a piece of middleware because it was financial reporting so we took data from upstream producers of the data who weren't producing the data they were just putting it in a particular format that we then consumed and then we were spitting it out into a group consolidation system that was still within the bank. So it was just kind of everything was internal, but it was the data had to exist in the in the interchange files for a reason. And if you started removing things, then people would get very angry with you. So if it's binning off columns, then either your processes are going to break downstream or if they're not going to break downstream, other people's processes are going to break. And it's like, I don't know that I trust an LLM to make that call just at this point. Yeah, it's also very... Um you know, SQL oriented, um, like I don't see a system like this working very well for like a DynamoDB backed, or it would need its own kind of LLM 
with specific NoSQL or DynamoDB like tailoring. Yeah, but I mean, I'd sort of expect that to be really honest, because one of the things that I've picked up from the various um, reinvent kind of noise and recaps and what have you is even Amazon is saying at this point, there's no one model to rule them all using a Lord of the Rings quote there. It's you've got to use the right one for the right job. And I think SQL versus NoSQL. And then if you can break NoSQL out into like key value versus graph versus whatever they're distinct enough that you're not going to be able to train a model well enough to kind of cope with all of that it's hard enough to train a developer well enough to cope with all of that yeah yeah so i read the the article and i, I sort of skimmed back and forth and i was trying to figure out why they called it panda could either of you guys figure out why they called it panda I actually did look that up. It was it's in the paper, and they underlined the letters that it, and they picked random letters. And it's performance performance debugging for databases using LLM agents, and they picked just random letters out of all of those words that spelled panda. Yeah. <laughs> well, not really how you make a normal acronym, but it's it's like the Marvel Comics approach to making acronyms is you start with the acronym and then make a name to fit it. Right. Yeah, Panda actually uh, used to be a, a um, antivirus software, I think, and they had one yes, of the best was. acronyms uh, ever. Uh, it was the uh, Panda Internet Security Suite. Didn't work particularly well as an acronym, but uh, it was always one of my one of my favourites. Uh, anyway, on that note, let's move on from Panda and uh, on to our next article, which is from the AWS Compute Blog. This one is about uh, using generative infrastructure as code with application composer. And uh, it's by Julian Wood. And uh, I digress, but did you know he's coming to our meetup on Thursday, John? I did not. No. Yeah, That's... Ben, Smith, ben Smith is bringing him along. So so there we are. Oh, um, he tagged him in that LinkedIn post that I said about the one that I went to last week. So I did talk to him. No, I went to the pub. Um, so I don't know. Maybe I'll get harangued at some point. Well, you might actually get to talk to him in the pub uh, on Thursday uh, <laughs> after the meetup. But uh, anyway, it's got nothing to do with the article. Um, the article that Julian has written is about using generative infrastructure as code with Application Composer. And of course, Application Composer is a tool that AWS launched to automatically create cloud formation uh, infrastructure as code by dragging and dropping cards um, in, a, in a GUI. Um, so uh, what do you think about this one, John? Well, we'll make a developer view yet, Carl. <laughs> oh, I, I can read. I can read. So you, you can read, and you can move cards. I can drag around. and drop cards around. Yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, I used to play solitaire a lot. So, uh, yeah. I mean, it's not that far from. Um, I don't know if it applies to other regions in the world, but in the UK, um, programming is part of the curriculum for primary school children, for elementary school children, and they use Scratch for that to start with, and they start doing Python bits and pieces, and that's all drag and drop too. So I think the whole world is going this way. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I I feel like this is a step up from clip up, click ops, but not yeah. like I, I don't know. I'm a big CDK fanboy. I made I made a CDK crash course for free code camp. I might um, have to go and so do I, that. I don't know. I, everything I do on AWS is pretty much via CDK, and to me, this I mean, I I did actually mess with this yesterday, um, just because I knew we were going to talk about it, and like it's cool, but it's not going to replace CDK for me. No, but I don't think that's the point. It's if you look at this and you look at, um, I don't know, hand rolling cloud formation, which is what I have tended to do just because, <coughs> excuse me, because I've been writing cloud formation for, I don't know, five, six years at this point. 
so it you know i've been doing it for longer than these tools have existed doing it since longer than cdk has existed really and it's just kind of that's what i do because that's what i've always done and you know habits um is it trying to replace cdk no is it trying to replace hand rolling your code i don't know maybe maybe because if you look at the quality of life improvements that they've made just inside of of cloud formation and sam in particular with things like resource connectors then this is going to be taking advantage of that to an extent so you can worry about your permissions um and it's taking advantage of just making things easier generally and then doing it inside vs code is kind of handy too to be honest so you're not having to muck, muck around elsewhere yeah um is it going to replace hand rolling? No, probably not. Is it going to replace CDK? No, probably not. Is it going to make it more accessible to the low code, no code kind of crowd um, that aren't developers, that aren't infrastructure engineers and all that sort of thing who still want to be able to build things? Yes, I think that's who it's targeted at. Um, They've made interesting, a lot of improvements though. on the visualization aspect uh, for application composer in general. Like I see... For the CDK side, I see it being really useful to like have that visualization of your CDK project after the fact. Or on the flip side, uh, like if you're in a meeting and need to whiteboard uh, an architecture that you're coming up from scratch, scratch and like just proof of concept kind of stuff, like I think this could be very useful for that, especially with the generative AI stuff kind of built into it. So, what is the generative AI doing in this scenario? Uh, it, it's helping uh, kind of tie things together, um, just making like quick improvements for things that you would also need to include, like IAM policies and things like that. Okay. Yeah, because I mean, in in things like native cloud formation, it's it's very easy to create if you're hand rolling the code. It's very easy to make a function and then have no. Um, I am policy, I am role associated with it. And then it will just go, oh, I can't actually do this. It will try and deploy it and they go, oh, you're missing this. Oh, you're missing that. And it will just keep going and keep going. And it becomes quite a painful process. Um, there's a number of tools that have tried to solve that problem, App Composer being one of them, especially with this Gen AI suggestion. Uh, Sam has a way around that as well in that it will automatically create a base role it means that it will at least deploy your function as a as an example, but it won't necessarily run because you might be asking it to do things it doesn't have permission to do, and Sam, you know, isn't reading inside your code. Um, but yeah, this is all. I think this is all good stuff in terms of making it more accessible to get started in this kind of space. Um, not quite sure where I'm going with that point, but it's it's all good generally. Anything that makes it easier to do this sort of thing for non-developers in particular um so i can get carl to do some real work is uh, is always welcome does it worry you though um i know uh, our uh, esteemed italian colleague is worried about all these layers of abstraction with people doing things or people being able to do things they don't really understand what they're creating in the background um is it just going to create a whole big mess if you've got people like me dragging and dropping cards and thinking woohoo i've built an application and uh yeah, it's never going to work, and someone else is going to have to come back and and fix it. Does it? Do you have? Do you share that concern? Or? Keeps me in a job. <laughs> yeah. If, if uh, in a sandbox environment where I imagine something, like you wouldn't be using this in a production environment. You'd be using this in a sandbox environment, maybe a personal AWS account or something like that. I, I think it's important at that point that you need to have uh, 
controls in place so they're not spinning up like massive you know massive compute in order to do things like oh you know i, I want this to go fast so i'm going to pick the biggest thing right <laughs> like and then you know ten thousand dollar bill later like <laughs> in a sandbox Oops. account yeah. but if you have the controls in place it's probably yeah, it depends on the guardrails, right? And the other thing that's very important um, that the article kind of alludes to as well is that App Composer spits CloudFormation out. So you can then put that in your CICD process and then, yes, it's been created by App Composer, but in you know it should have had tests done against it and been logically validated by an architect type person or an engineer, um, which, to be honest, cloud engineers are pseudo-architects anyway because the one informs the other to a great extent. Um, so it's not, as you say, it's not something that you're going to be running directly in a production account, or you certainly shouldn't be. Yeah, it might be a good way to learn about um, how the different AWS components tie together too. So it could be good for junior engineers to mess with in, in that in that sense. Nice. Cool. Okay. Well, let's move on then um, from AI. I think that's all for AI for this episode, which is over half the episode, but uh, let's, get, <laughs> let's skip on to the third article for this week. This one's from the AWS storage blog, and it's about automating object processing in Amazon S3 directory buckets with S3 batch operations and AWS Lambda. And it focuses specifically on uh, S3 Express One Zone, although uh, I don't believe, I, I think it will work in any, uh, any of the, the storage tiers. Um, but uh, tell us a little bit about this. Let's let's come to you first, Matt, on this one. What what are your thoughts on this? Um, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't necessarily think the the focus on it, of it being on S three Express One Zone was you know necessarily needed because I do think it will apply to other things. Um, yeah, I, I looked at it from like my my perspective, my dev perspective, and like CDK doesn't support S three batch operations, not directly at least. Um, so maybe you would add this to your project using like step functions or something like that. And maybe I'll save this for later. It actually segues kind of nicely into the next topic. Um, because if you are doing these batch operations where you're transferring uh, objects from one bucket to another, and maybe you're doing it cross region, like that could coincide with, uh, the spoilers, the, the slashing data transfer costs that we're about to talk about. Hmm. John? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. I think the reason that they've gone down the um, directory type bucket is because that's one that's just kind of in the consciousness because it's a new thing. So new thing, we've got to talk about it because otherwise people forget it exists. And especially when you've got people like us that every time we talk about it, say 99% of the time you don't need it. So forget about it. You know, so they've got to just keep hammering that. So we keep talking about it um, just to keep it in the zeitgeist to an extent. Um, but given that it's, you know, millisecond latency and, and this, that, and the other, it does suit a batch job a bit more than, um, traditional S3 buckets do, because if you're accessing, I don't know, 10,000, a million, a hundred million distinct objects, which batch processing can absolutely do, then having that lower latency to those objects is going to be incredibly important just for getting the job done quickly. Um, especially where you pay for, you know, how long things are running as you do with things like Lambda. So that's, that's part of it. That's definitely part of it. Um, I think the other element, which is kind of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's an interesting one, like I say, because it's 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 very geared towards just moving massive amounts of data around, and there's always going to be a reason for that. And yeah, okay, they've packaged up some examples and, and sort of all the rest of it. But if you've got loads and loads of data going into one place, and then you need to do the same thing to that 
to that particular piece of data um, that's just potentially moving it or, or doing very minor transformations to it, I can't help but feel that there's a better way of doing it. I couldn't tell you what it was offhand, but it feels like there's just a bit of a, here's a thing that we can do with this, so let's talk about it. Like I don't know how well thought out it's been. Yeah, I feel like I feel like doing something like this with uh, like step functions and maybe their distributed map would be yeah more flexible because um, this this one creates a lambda function to do the the batch ops and I mean lambda functions have a limited runtime. Uh, I don't know, like is it invoking a is it invoking a single lambda function for every file that it's moving? So you're possibly invoking a lambda a million times. Like I don't know if there's throttling limits there. Uh, I haven't personally played with this. I'm very averse to like trying out AWS <laughs> blog things that aren't have a backing in like CloudFormation or something, so I can easily destroy it after the fact. But yeah, you're not wrong. I think the point with the um, batch operation is it's. I don't think it's invoking the same function for every object because the whole point of the batch operation is such that you reduce your API calls, which have a cost. Um, which is presumably why you'd use a batch operation rather than something event-driven by the notification process. Because if you are having something hit a bucket and then you need to do a thing to it to transform it, then go and send it somewhere else, that's the kind of traditional way you do it in that you'd have an event notification from S3 that goes off and I don't know, hits a queue, fires a lambda, does a thing, and then events happen and, and stuff moves. But obviously, if you've got vast amounts of files hitting said bucket, you're not going to want to do that for every single one because costs, API costs, Lambda run costs, invocations, throttling, yada, 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 yada. So, it, yeah, I'm not sure what the use case for this is. Maybe it's high-performance compute. Maybe it's IoT. I don't know. But I just feel like there's a probably a better way for more specific scenarios. And this feels like a a very genericized thing to show off the latency of the directory style buckets. Yeah. I, I did just skim the Lambda code in the article. And I mean, it's just doing an S3 copy object, mm. but it's, it's not invoking it one-to-one. -one. It's invoking it some number of tasks to one invoke of the Lambda. I just don't know what the limits are there. Cool. Okay. Well, John, you mentioned costs there, and uh, mm -hmm. Matt, you did uh, mention the next article that we were going to talk about today. So it's uh, it's also uh, about S3, but uh, this this one, um, the article title, it's on a it's a blog post on Bits and Cloud, and the article title <laughs> is slashing data transfer costs in AWS by ninety nine percent, and uh, it's an interesting hack. Um, of how to get around data transfer costs altogether by using S3. So um, who wants to walk us through this one? Uh, I can. Um, Go for I it, actually yeah. did a, link, a post on LinkedIn about the, this article yesterday because okay. I, yeah. I was looking into it. And I, I thought it was funny that the author uh, did this workaround by spinning up EC2 instances. I feel like they could have done that a little more cheaply than, uh, than doing that. But... <laughs> yeah. Bit of irony yeah, they're, they're doing this loophole in the AWS pricing um, model for S3, which says data transferred from an Amazon S3 bucket to any AWS service within the same AWS region as the S3 bucket, including to a different account in the same AWS region is free. So that's kind of what they're doing. So like I, when I've done pre-signed, sorry, when I've done data transfers before between buckets, I haven't necessarily done it between regions, but I've done it between AWS accounts and 
the how I normally do it is I, I'll generate a pre-signed URL and then send, send that over and have the, the other thing fetch it, right? Um, maybe a better way would be to, you know, create an enroll and assume it. Depends on the account structure. But that pre-signed URL, like that's direct access to the S3 bucket, essentially. So that would incur the transfer cost. Like it's it's just like downloading it from the internet. Um, so what they're doing here is they're spinning up an EC2 instance and making use of that loophole to retrieve the bucket to another AWS service in the same region. And then it will send it to wherever else it needs to go. So you could do something similar to this, probably cheaper without EC2, but and make it either step function based or Lambda based and spin up some API gateways with direct integrations and then save probably even more cost avoiding VPCs and uh, EC2 instances and all that. John, I know you had some thoughts on this one as well. Um, it's a brilliant little hack. It is. It's brilliant. Um, I did see this come out on another newsletter that I'm on, on Corey Quinn's one today, and his comment on it, and I might see if I can find it, was something along the lines of, this is brilliant, why is this necessary? And I kind of had the same thought. It's, if there's this, I mean, it's almost like tax legislation. You know how much I love talking about tax. Um, it's, <laughs> it's almost like that in that it's, the pricing for egress is deliberately overcomplicated such that these weird and wonderful loopholes exist, but they shouldn't have to. You know, the egress fee should be pretty consistent and pretty obvious because, as you say, if it's coming, you know, from S3 straight out to the internet, that's nine cents a gig or, or what have you. Um, if you do S3 into, you know, cross AZ because S3 is regional service doesn't cost you anything. If you're sending it into a VPC without a VPC endpoint, that costs money, which is why now when you create a VPC through that actually quite nice wizard, um, it creates the VPC endpoint for you. So you then don't have to pay for it, but historically that didn't exist. So it's, it feels like this is an artifact of the lack of joined up thinking. Um, and I hate the term, but lack of joined up design thinking from AWS between the various services. So they've gone S3, well, you're going to need that from lots of places within AWS. So let's just make transfers to that uh, free or, or nearly free, depending on what you're doing. Brilliant. Love that. Out to the internet, uh, that, that's nine cents a gig from pretty much every service in creation. It's a little bit less from CloudFront, I think, but you might pay to get things into CloudFront. So it works out to about that. So transfers within AWS, let's make them cheaper. Outside of AWS, it's got this kind of number, but they haven't rationalized it. So you end up with these really weird setups. And to an extent, I guess that's because if you don't have these endpoints, then it's going to go out through the internet to come back in, which is a bit kind of mad. But yeah, it's 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 a really nice hack, but why the hell is it necessary? Can we not just rationalize the pricing? Yeah, it's an unnecessary, loop, unnecessary loophole. Yeah, I agree with that. Cool. All right. Well, let's slip. Slip? No, let's not slip. Let's skip onto our final article for uh, next uh, next week. No. <laughs> <laughs> I've completely lost it now. Let me just rewind and start that again. Let's skip onto the final article for this week, <laughs> which is an article on the AWS Cloud Operations and Migrations blog um, entitled Implementing Automated and Centralized Tagging Controls with AWS Config and AWS Organizations. So tagging, of course, uh, an absolutely essential part of your uh, AWS. US resource management strategy. Uh, so automate, automation of that uh, can only be desirable. Um, so uh, John, do you want to talk us through this article uh, on how uh, we can implement automated and centralized tagging controls using config and organizations? 
Have you found your teeth now? <laughs> Just about, yeah. I think I've reseated them, uh, and uh, I don't know what happened there. For... <laughs> Nothing for your pop filter to struggle with today, though. I'm sorry. Well, I've uh, I've gone for a, a more lightweight pop filter now because it turns out that my microphone has a built-in pop filter. So uh, I think any any additional pop filters are actually surplus to requirements. It's, it's just about it's more about aesthetics than uh, than actual functionality. So. Uh, I would try 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 and take it off and show you, but it might make a horrible scratching noise, which I don't think any of the listeners would appreciate. So, yeah, yeah this isn't an ASMR podcast. Yeah. <laughs> All right, on message. So, it talks about this from the purpose from the perspective of cost allocation tags, but there's a lot of reasons why you'd want tags on your resources. Cost being one of them, obvious one. You can drive ta- you can use tags to drive a lot of other things within AWS as well. The one that I'm more familiar with apart from cost is for AWS backup plans because you can say you know backup resources based on this tag and associate them with this vault and kind of all the rest of it and I've I won't claim credit for building it but I've implemented that in one in a number of um customer environments where it's uh, a number of vaults and based on the tag you can kind of do backups of a certain frequency why do you need to enforce this? Well, because if you don't enforce it, people won't do it. And that means either your resources aren't being allocated to cost centers properly, which for large organizations is a problem, or for every organization, they might not be being backed up because you haven't forced people to put the tag on. And that's not maliciousness. That's not laziness. That's just people forgetting. It's very easy to forget to put a tag on if you don't force people to do it. And there's two kind of ways of handling this. There's proactive and there's reactive. Now, we spoke last week, week before, about a proactive way of handling it within CloudFormation and AWS config rules. Um, and that didn't particularly refer to tagging. It was just more of a generic, you know, you can build a hook and, and read the rule and, and that's all fine and dandy. But as it says at the bottom of this article, AWS config for required tags, there is a thing for it, but it only supports... 10, 15 different types of resource within AWS. And that's frankly not good enough. So what they've done is they've come out with this enormous great architecture. And yeah, okay, it's event-driven, which is nice, and it uses event bridge, and and you could probably orchestrate it with a step function if you wanted to, but you probably don't need to because it's DynamoDB and streams and talking to config, and it does this cross-account nicety and kind of all the rest of it. But it's it's really rather annoying to me that this even has to exist because this is a service that should just be you know i'd like to enforce tagging across everything please um you know it must have this type of tag it can have these sets of values and you can do that for a subset of resources using AWS config so i I suspect it's on a roadmap somewhere um within the config team and this is just something that's not been prioritized because of again the disjointed design behind everything because yes okay there's an api for everything but the api call for interacting with the tags on dynamo versus ec2 versus a snapshot versus rds versus aurora versus whatever the the specific api call is going to be different so obviously it's it's not something that's trivial to implement i think which is presumably why this is such an enormous thing to say, yes, you can now require tags on on everything or almost everything rather than just using the built-in way that does some of it. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap between this and like, I don't know, I, I went to event-driven architecture day that was in Nashville last October. And there was a talk there that was very similar to this, like at least the like top part of the the. Um, the arc diagram in the article and 
it talked about doing event bridge event schema validation and like and it that's basically exactly what they're doing here they're validating the schema of the events that's coming out of aws organizations i guess and then mashing it with something in dynamodb and i forget who the speaker was but uh i mean they talked about the same type of outline and this this they're just the next step of their talk would be adding this into aws config and having that specify the rules and everything so I don't know. I guess it goes to show you that there's like a lot of patterns out there that are reusable in many different ways. And... Cool. Any more thoughts on this one, John? I mean, I could say I'm annoyed about it some more if you want, but that's about it. <laughs> cool. Okay. Well, that, that does bring us neatly to the end of our time for this week. So uh, thank you, John, as always, for your insights. Thank you very much for giving your time to join us as a guest, Matt. It's been great to uh, hear your insights as well. Um, that was uh, Season 3, Episode 4 of Logicast. Uh, you can download us from wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to see what we look like, you can find us on YouTube uh, and watch us while we speak. Um, so uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a, another episode of Logicast. See you again next time. <laughs>